according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 21. We've had a couple of lessons in this chapter already, and uh, I think we're ready to look at uh, verse 3 now in, in depth and, and uh, spend, in fact, I want to spend the whole hour dealing with these principles that are here in verse 3. And then we'll get ready to move on to, um, to verses 4 and following when we see the, the pride and the wicked in verse 4. There's, a, there's an emphasis on the wicked uh, six or seven times in this chapter, and we'll get a chance to look at all those here, I think probably starting as early as next week. But we have to deal with, uh, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. And how we live, how we walk, the things we accomplish is the priority for God, more than our external religion, more than our ritual, more than the, the trappings of, of showing off to other people what a good person we are based on how religious we can be, uh, but actually doing righteousness and doing justice. This is the emphasis that the Lord places on it. So we're going to start with a word of prayer and ask the Father to bless our time of study, ask for His hand of grace and protection upon us, and uh, thank Him for this time today, shall we pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this morning and the truth of your word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Thank you for this local church, Father, and brothers and sisters that are hungry to be fed from your truth. We ask for your blessing upon our time together, that you would open our eyes <clears throat> to see the, uh, the truth from your word, that you would open our hearts to receive your word implanted. And Father, uh, also we're calling upon you, as we always do, to uh, place a hedge of protection around us, to, uh, to bless our time of study and hinder anyone they would want to come in here and, and uh, bring us to harm in any way. We do thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so uh, we have already dealt with verses 1 and 2 in the last couple of weeks, talking about the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. And the blessings we have, knowing that the political leaders that we have are the ones that God has sovereignly determined for us to have, the ones we like, the ones we don't like, the ones we voted for, the ones we didn't vote for, and whatever else. God is in charge of the, uh, of the political leaders that we have. And so uh, as we looked at, let me get past some of these early points, how destructive water can be, how powerful water can be. But noticing the hand of God in directing human history, that is significant. And we can rest confidently in that. The hand of God in directing human history as he turns the hearts of political rulers. And we have so many examples of it, uh, starting in Genesis 20 with, with uh, Abimelech, looking at the different Persian kings that were useful in Ezra and in Nehemiah, seeing uh, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. The fact is, and I think that Daniel 4 prophecies are as, uh, prophecies are as, as clear as can be, that, uh, that we have the, the king that God wants us to have. He installs kings, he, re he removes kings. God is in charge of, of human history. We can appreciate that. And in, in, in large respects it makes a, an election season or political uncertainty. It just lets us step back and relax and say, okay Lord, you're in charge and we don't have to get all worked up over uh, you know, things that get people worked up. So I enjoyed teaching that material very much. We moved on past that to deal with uh, verse 2 
Every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. And so it's important, I think, too, that we recognize that self-reflection, it's good if you can identify issues there that need to be adjusted, but I think we're too good at lying to ourselves, and we're too good at convincing ourselves that we're okay. And uh, and if every man's way is right in his own eyes, then what's the point in looking at it if I'm just going to look at my own way and say, yeah, I'm good with it. So it's the Lord who weighs the hearts. And so it's much better to call upon the Lord to do the searching. We ask God, we say, search me, try me, know me. We ask the Lord to evaluate us. And this is what the Word of God does. The Lord weighs the heart. So it's much better to call upon the Lord to do the searching. And uh, this was actually a doctrine we taught in chapter 16, you might remember. Uh, So uh, when we went through it again last week, it was a bit of a review, which I don't mind. I think repetition's useful. The review is is good to, uh, to remind ourselves of these things. So moving on this morning then to point four, which is really the, the, the crux of the issue here in, in verse three. To do righteousness and justice. This is the first half of the verse. The A part, if you will. Remember all of the verses in Proverbs are essentially broken down into an A part and a B part, the two halves of the poetry. God does have desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped how he is to be worshipped. And it's very spelled out. And it's not narcissistic and it's not wrong and it's not self-centered. It'd be wrong for you and me if we tried to, <laughs> if we tried to call upon people and say, well, you need to worship me like this or, or respect me like that or whatever. No, it's not human narcissism. When God does it, he's God. He is worthy to be worshipped. And so when you look at these passages like uh, Exodus 28 or Leviticus 21, when you see how God desires to be worshipped, He has every right to do so. And even before the verses that are listed there, last week I, I added Genesis 4 to the list because Cain brought vegetables and Abel brought, brought uh, the animal sacrifice, the blood offering of the sheep, and it was the blood sacrifice that was pleasing to God, not the bloodless vegetable sacrifice that Cain was attempting to bring. So um, you know, these are principles that we have to recognize. God's the creator, we're the creatures, we worship Him on His terms, not our terms. And if that gets us to, you know, bends our nose out of shape, we, could, we just have to adjust what we're doing and, uh, and so forth. Now what I want to start with today is John chapter 4. Let me get my Bible up here. John chapter 4 and verse 23. This is The woman at the well, Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman. The disciples had gone into the town to buy food. Jesus is sitting there at the well. And this woman comes out, and in this encounter there is so much truth that we glean from this. Um, Particularly, if I back up just a few verses, um, this woman, when she realizes that a prophet is in front of her, she says, Sir, I I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you you Jewish people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And so now she, she recognizing that there's a real prophet in front of her, she's got a chance to get her questions answered. You know, this debate between the Jews and the Samaritans, who's right? You know, which mountain should we come to and which temple is correct? And, and uh, they had their own Pentateuch, their own Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They translated it into the Samaritan language. And uh, so it's really a competition between the Samaritan approach and the Jewish approach. And, uh, and now she wants to get her, her questions answered. She knows that Messiah is coming, so she is a believer in the Old Testament looking forward to the coming Messiah. 
So Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming. And, and this language, we, we pay attention to this because I believe there's a difference and we should be cautious. When he says an hour is coming, that means it's pending, it's not here yet, it's on the way, it's, uh, it's imminent. Okay? But then when he says an hour is coming and now is, then uh, we, we apply this presently uh, in the time that Jesus is speaking. So woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And the more I chew on this, the more I consider this, I think it's interesting because he's not just saying that the, the you know, this is Jesus in, in the Old Testament in the, in the dispensation of Israel. And, and yes, there is coming from his standpoint a, a stewardship called the church where you and I are today in the dispensation of the church age. And ours is a stewardship where each one of us is a believer priest. Each one of us, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Each one of us, uh, we don't have to go to a, to a, a worship center in, in, in any you know, Jerusalem or Rome or you know, the, 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 the Roman Catholic Church would have you believe that, that it shifted from Jerusalem to Rome. But, but what Jesus is saying here is that geography is going to become irrelevant in a, in a pending circumstance. And he's he can't break the mystery doctrine of the church, but he is giving an indication of things that we understand now with our hindsight to be a hint or an indicator of the coming church. So an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And, and so we get that. We've taught that several times that the, the, the geographic centrality of Jerusalem, which was true for the Jewish people, is not true today. And it's certainly not true for us. It's not a reality for the body of Christ in the church age. What I've really not stressed is that Jesus was not only discounting Jerusalem, he was also discounting this mountain, talking about the Samaritan worship, the Samaritan mountain. And in, I believe in so doing, he's acknowledging the fact that these Samaritan worshipers on this Samaritan mountain are in fact um, worshiping. That uh, this woman is a believer. This woman is looking to the coming Messiah, and she is uh, positive to God consciousness, positive to the worship of the Father. And it's interesting. An hour is coming when neither in this mountain, like you're doing now, nor in Jerusalem, like the Jews are doing now, will you worship the Father. Now it goes past that. You worship what you do not know. So when he says you worship, he's admitting that they are worshiping. They are practicing a faith. They are practicing a religious observance. But it is not in accordance with knowledge. It's what you do not know, that their facts are incorrect related to these things. We worship what we know. So that the Jewish approach is what's uh, consistent with what God has revealed. For salvation is from the Jews. The uh, Samaritan Pentateuch was a copycat from the Jewish scriptures, not the other way around. And, uh, and that the promises of the covenants, the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they were Jewish promises, that it's through the Jewish people that the Gentiles are going to be blessed. So an hour is coming and now is. Now we stress the now is part. We see this is not looking forward to the coming church age, that it's actually a universal principle. It has always been the case. It was true for Israel in the Old Testament. It was true for Gentiles in the Old Testament. It's always been true. It's been true from the, the time of the angels when they had a stewardship before Adam. God is spirit. 
All right, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Now that's not just a prophecy of the coming church age, it's a present reality. He says an hour is coming and now is. And this is I think useful because it it agrees with Proverbs 21, it agrees with what we're looking at here this morning, is that ritual is not reality. Ritual should point to reality. Ritual should communicate doctrine, it should relate to the, the reality of God's revelation. But if you substitute the ritual for the reality, woe be unto you. Because this then is just, it, it, it's tantamount to it's legalism. By definition, you're, you think that doing a ritual will excuse sin, or will excuse godlessness, or will ex- excuse idolatry, and it does not. So true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. And this also is a present ongoing activity uh, that God Himself does the seeking. God is seeking worshipers in, uh, in these ways. And this is curious to me. And this is, um, you know, and, and we, we discuss it here too. What are we seeking as a church? Are we seeking uh, unbelievers to present the gospel to? Are we seeking uh, unchurched people to, to be grounded in a, in a local church. What are we seeking? And uh, are, we, are we actively engaged in a process where we can try to boost our numbers because we're seeking a larger membership? You know, and, and you've, you've noticed, probably noticed around here we don't, we're not doing that. <laughs> but what are we seeking? What did, and what is it that the New Testament commands us to be seeking? I think I've got a personal philosophy that, well, you know, if the Father Himself is seeking to, uh, folks to be His worshipers, well then uh, that's, our, that's our outreach program right there. <laughs> All right? We'll let God do the seeking and then when He chooses to, uh, to entrust uh, particular sheep to, to this shepherd or to this flock, then that's also His business. And we're going to be faithful. We're going to be faithful with, with everything that, that God provides. Alright, so God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And so we can rejoice in this. This was true then, it's true now, it will always be true. It'll be true in the tribulation, it'll be true in the millennium, it'll be true in the new heavens and on the new earth, and it'll be true for all eternity, that all worship to the Father will be in spirit and in truth. Let's look at Hebrews 10, remind ourselves of what we saw there, our recently completed Hebrew series. Bible window up a little larger. I'll drop it back down in a moment. So God does have desires and specifications regarding how He is worshipped. And here's our priesthood in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. We're not talking about the earthly replica. We're not talking about the, uh, the, the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 A.D. We're talking about the heavenly reality and we function there in the spiritual realm. We do have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He inaugurated for us through the veil that is His flesh. He inaugurated for us. And um, got some studies on that coming up uh, in our Colossians series. Uh, but the idea of an inauguration is something new, something that is, that is uh, the newness of something that is opened up. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So here's our mandate and here's our expectation that we enter within the veil, that we stand before the Father in the heavenly places in Christ. This is our function, our Melchizedek priesthood function in Christ as we stand before the Father. Far more, the emphasis on that, uh, greater than uh, you know, the earthly place, the earthly building in which we meet or anything related to a local church assembly in the aspect there. We are standing before the Father in Christ in, uh, in this marvelous priesthood. Alright, different blessings there. Stay tuned for more on that. I think when we're going to emphasize the principles of newness that are going to be coming up because in Colossians we've learned that we took off the old man and have put on the new man and the newness of the new man uh, connects to the new creation, the new priesthood, the new worship, the, new, the newness of life, all the newness that we have. Even the New Testament is kind of labeled with, with the language of new. And so these are things that we need to uh, pay attention to. Alright, so the top half of the slide is a no-brainer. We get this. God has desires and specifications regarding how He has worshipped. But more than that, the greater desires, the greater specifications. His desires and specifications for our treatment of others. This is doing righteousness and doing justice. Let's get, uh, again, let's take a look at Proverbs 21.3. To do righteousness and justice. Doing righteousness and justice. All right, This is where we're doing things. And, and some of it's idiomatic and some of it is frustrating and some of it uh, I think gets overdone <laughs> in, uh, in uh, our English idioms that we use today all the time. And, and some of it is just personal and, and, and my wife drives her up a wall. So I've, I've attempted not to use some of these idioms. But today I'm kind of stuck because we're doing righteousness and we're doing justice. Okay? It's like when if you're doing lunch. How do you do lunch? You eat lunch, okay? And so sometimes we do things and uh, we overuse the doing expression maybe in, uh, in our expressions today. So how do we do righteousness? How do we do justice? Well, it's centering on how we're treating others. And this is what the, uh, I'm trying to get across here on this slide, his desires and specifications for our treatment of others. Doing righteousness, doing justice. This is how we conduct our personal lives. This is how we operate uh, towards believers and unbelievers alike, towards church members and strangers and everyone else alike. Are we doing righteousness? Are we doing justice? Are we equitable and fair uh, according to God's eternal standards? Not according to our culture's expectations, but according to the Word of God, according to God's uh, eternal standards. His desires and specifications for our treatment of others are greater in in His estimation. And then there's going to be a third principle once we look at these verses, that religious observance cannot make up for deficiencies in one's personal walk. 
So if, if your personal walk is the opposite of righteousness and justice, if your personal walk is unrighteous and unjust, and this, is, this covers everything. This covers uh, your personal life, your, your professional life, your work life, your, your marriage life, your political life, your social life, your sex life, your... How many other lives do we have? I've got I've to write down a list of all these lives that we have so I can memorize them better. But if any of these facets of life are unrighteous or unjust, the God of righteousness and justice is not pleased because He desires this. And He desires this more than He desires sacrifice. Now if that's not a proportion that grabs your attention, it ought to. Because we know that His desire for proper sacrifice carries with it the death penalty. Remember that Nadab and Abihu example, they, they brought strange fire before the Lord. And they were, they were executed for their idolatry. They were executed for their strange fire. And if, if those desires convey capital punishment and the death penalty and that God executes the wicked, if, 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 if false worship con, uh, conveys a death penalty, and this is a greater proportion, you see, you see what the, the impact is here? that right, doing righteousness and doing justice is, is, is of great accountability. All right. So let's look at the, the middle part of this slide here. His desires and specifications for our treatment of others are greater in his own estimation. And let's uh, realize how this is illustrated for us in the life of, of uh, King Saul. 1 Samuel 15 22 and 23. And this is an episode uh, shortly before, you know, towards the end of Saul's ministry. In fact, it's when uh, he's crossed a line and God says, that's it, you're done. I'm going to pick out a, a better king than you and replace you with a man after my own heart. And it's because of this rebellion of King Saul's in, uh, in this chapter. 1 Samuel 15. And I've got to back up a little bit to get a larger context on this. All right, let's see. Do I want to read the whole chapter to you? There's so many good parts of this. All right, so the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Some people don't like the, the language of this chapter because it it does communicate a regret on God's part. It does not deny omniscience. He knows that it's going to happen. That doesn't mean he has to like it when it does happen. Okay, And I think that's the best way to explain it. He knows that Saul is going to be a horrible king at the end of his life. And uh, that's, you know, he knows that ahead of time. He has the foreknowledge of that. But still, when it plays out, he, he has the regrets that, that uh, I think any of us would have related to these things. So Samuel arose early in the morning to meet Saul after uh, an all-night prayer meeting. And uh, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul has came to Carmel. We've talked about Carmel before in different capacities. It's curious to me. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he has set up a monument for himself. That's not good. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. 
you know, this is like a phony religious person today that says, you know, praise Jesus, hallelujah, brother, and, and I'm doing all this great stuff for Jesus. And they're doing nothing of the kind. They're serving themselves. They're building their own monuments. They're, they're, they're pursuing their own self-worship. But Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? You know, because the command was to, to kill, to exterminate the entire population here of the, uh, of the Amalekites. So why do I hear sheep? Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. So right there from the, this first argument out of, Samuel, uh, out of Saul's mouth, you know he's a weasel. He's, he's, he's already making the excuses. Well, the people did it, and they just picked the best out for sacrifices. They're about to die any moment now. We're going we're gonna to kill them for sacrifice. And it, he's just making these weasel excuses for why he did, uh, disobeyed. And he's going to try to convince Samuel that he really did obey. He didn't disobey, he really did obey. And it's the same kind of weasel excuse making that Adam and Eve did in the garden when they were blaming, uh, Adam was blaming Eve and Eve was blaming the serpent and on it goes. So Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. <laughs> you know, It's an interesting excuse you're making here but the Lord's way ahead of you. Because before I heard these weasel words this morning, God already briefed me last night on, uh, on, the, on the circumstances. And uh, so he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head over the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? You think that you're going to get rich off this conquest, which was normal in the ancient world. It was normal to plunder your enemies and, and, and reap the benefits, the spoils of war. So why did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord, and it went... <laughs> and went on the mission of which the Lord sent me, and have brought back Agag, king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, (laughs) see, it was like Adam blaming Eve, and Eve blaming the serpent, here he's blaming the people. They took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. They only did it so they could sacrifice. Well, that's not what they were told to do. And God must be worshipped on His own terms anyway. Obedience is better than sacrifice. Has, and so Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as obeying the voice of the Lord? Remember, to do justice, to do righteousness in, uh, in Proverbs 21. Here it's to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. So how do, you th- how do you think your sacrifices are well received when it's coming hand in hand with divination? Insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you've rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. So Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed and commanded the Lord and your words because I feared the people 
and listened to their voice. Now this seems like a confession. This seems like a, a good move on, on Saul's part. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now the confession is good, the confession is appropriate, and anytime if we confess our sins He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We need to confess to be restored to fellowship, but keep in mind to be spiritually restored to fellowship does not mean that all the consequences go away, or that somehow everything is, is made better, that somehow you, uh, you're no longer subject to the ongoing divine discipline or consequences of your activity. And so he will not be the king. He has already been rejected, and God has said a man after his own heart is going to take his place. And so um, this is where uh, Samuel turns to go, and Saul sees the edge of his robe, and it tore. What a metaphor, you know? Good illustration. They didn't have PowerPoint back then. They just had to different things. All right. So uh, with the tearing of the robe, Samuel uh, says, all right, that's a good illustration. And uh, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to your neighbor who is better than you. <laughs> and that's got to that's gotta hurt. That's got to hurt. Because Saul, you know, he's just finished building a monument to himself, right? He just finished, you know, celebrating how great he was. And, uh, and the Lord says, you know, someone better than you is going to be the next king. And um, different things here. So there's more to this. Let me get back. Samuel went back to following Saul. Saul worshiped the Lord, so good for him. And uh, then Samuel said, bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And this is his, the end of his story. Of course, he, he's cheerful. He thinks he's skated already. And uh, Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, surely the bitterness of death has passed. And, uh, you know, this is when a, a neighboring king realizes, oh, wait a minute, okay, that he's not dealing with, with Saul anymore. Saul, he could wrap around his finger and, and handle. But this is Samuel. This is a different animal altogether. And Samuel is serving the Lord. And... Uh, Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Okay? This is where I, you know, I'm happy to be a church age pastor teacher. It's much less bloody. <laughs> the, the Old Testament prophets were gruesome. I tell you. And this is, this is I think, not an exception to the rule. I think this is standard for uh, when you look at the judges and the prophets and, and uh, the ministry that they had. So uh, yeah, Chop, uh, chopping up Agag into pieces here. So Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul, and Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. For Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. This is what introduces then David, the son of Jesse. And you get into chapter 16 when Samuel comes to Bethlehem, and now you know why these elders are so nervous. Why they're why is he coming here? Kind of a thing, you know. And why is a prophet visiting our town? This is, uh, you know, because he had just finished chopping up Agag. And uh, anyway, you can you can read through that. The um, the statement that he makes though about obedience, better than sacrifice. 
This is uh, consistent with the uh, doing justice and doing righteousness that's more important than sacrifice in Proverbs 21.3. We also have Micah 6, 6 through 8. say, well, whoever reads Micah, that's a minor prophet, isn't it? Yeah? But Micah is uh, the prophet that tells us about, uh, it's, the, it's the companion to Isaiah, tells us about Bethlehem. While Isaiah is giving us the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, the prophet Micah is giving us Bethlehem as the birthplace. And it's, uh, it's a tremendous tandem between uh, Isaiah and Micah on this. But Micah 6.6, 6, I don't want to read all of this. Yeah, there's a rebuke in the first five verses. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Preaching to literal mountains and hills or is there an angelic component to this whereby the observers of human history have to learn the doctrine that believers illustrate for them? Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth because the Lord has a case against His people. Even with Israel He will dispute my people, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Answer me. You know, like a parent crying out to their child after all I've done for you. <laughs> Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. And from Shittim to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. What a kind of an introduction to what we're seeing here. Uh, Recounting how faithful God had been, the warnings they had received, the ministry of Balaam. All right. All that introduces now verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Is He going to be impressed with this? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You know, what is going to impress God? What is going to please Him? What is going to satisfy Him? Especially now, you notice in verse 7, I start to admit the fact that I've been wrong. I've been worshiping idols. I've been a rebel. So, you know, and, and legalism kind of fosters this attitude too, like I have been, I've been kind of a crummy Christian the last few weeks or months or the last couple of years has been pretty spotty. If, if I'm going to get back on God's good side, I may have to write a pretty hefty check to the church just to, you know, <laughs> no, you're not bribing God. You're just trying to ameliorate your own, your own guilty conscience. And uh, is he going to be impressed with this? How about thousands of rams or thousands of rivers of oil, or your firstborn, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. You know, right there, that verse may be a, a nice summary of the entire Bible related to any of our expectations of any stewardship. Old Testament, New Testament, Israel, church, tribulation, millennium, Has there ever been a dispensation where born-again believers were not expected to to walk in such a way? I think it's applicable in all stewardships. 
What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? So it's not a true, not a 100% parallel, because in Proverbs it's justice and righteousness, and in Micah here it's, it's justice and kindness, or the, the chesed principle. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's very much uh, consistent with what the principle that we're seeing here. More than sacrifice, more than 10,000 goats, more than rivers of oil. This is uh, what's expected. Hosea 6. Hosea chapter 6, another minor prophet, okay? Uh, And the last of the prophets, uh, you know, it's interesting. He's sent to the northern kingdom, and it's it's curious how his name Hosea, which is an Old Testament form of Jesus, really. It's like Joshua or Hosea. uh, and, uh, And the last king, the final king has the same name, the final king of the northern kingdom, Hosea is the final king when the northern kingdom falls, when it's swept away by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. Um, But this is Hosea the prophet, and he's writing. He says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. You know, it's a call to repentance. And I think it's it's a principle that as long as you're still alive, you've got an opportunity to to repent. You've got an opportunity to confess. And you know, Saul was that illustration, and, and we have these, these uh, examples. And he may not restore us to our political office, but we can be forgiven. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. Well, isn't that curious? Raised on the third day. You know, and you, and you wonder, hmm, got some connections here. Verse 3, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And, and so, you know, it's a good message. It's an it's a Old Testament message, a prophetic message of repentance. Uh, the, the Jewish people, even in the northern kingdom, could have responded to it, could have listened to it. They, um, they could uh, reject their idolatry and start serving the one true God. They could start living for the coming of Messiah and His first advent coming and um, knowing that it's certain, knowing that Messiah is coming. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? And uh, even though he's a prophet to the northern kingdom, he realizes Ephraim is the northern kingdom, Judah is the southern kingdom, and uh, and they're going to be even worse. After the northern kingdom is swept away, the southern kingdom just pursues idolatry even worse. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Sounds like a parent with teenagers. <laughs> okay, What am I going to do with you? Your loyalty is like a morning cloud, like the dew which goes away early. That's the chesed, loving kindness. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I mentioned Samuel was not the exception to the rule. It's just maybe the most uh, vivid, uh, explicit illustration that we have. But Hosea makes it clear that it was kind of normal. That was normative. I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. And the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So 
again, we've got variety in some of the vocabulary. In Proverbs, it was righteousness and justice. Uh, earlier in Micah, it was justice and chesed, loyalty. Here it's loyalty and knowledge, the knowledge of God. Okay? And so I think that these are the principles that we glean, and we're not going to be you know, wrapped up in, in, in precision on the, on the vocabulary. The, the Hebrew doesn't lend itself to that kind of precision. I think we have the principle, whether we're talking about justice, righteousness, loyalty, goodness, the knowledge of God. We're talking about the intimate Christian walk. We're talking about what we saw in Micah 6.8, walking humbly with your God. That's what He expects of us. And uh, to do righteousness and justice, loyalty rather than sacrifice. And in chesed might be the noun that best uh, kind of summarizes all the rest of them put together. It is the attitude of God Himself, that He is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That it's the, the chesed of God that very patiently um, ministers to us when, when we need those wake-up calls. I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice. And remember, when God takes a delight in something, the delight is the opposite of the abomination. The delight is what He embraces. The delight is what He hugs, what He draws near. Remember, the abomination is what He pushes away. It's what He drives away. But the delight is what He embraces or or draws near. And if He delights in loyalty, then this is what, uh, you know, this is what we want to exhibit. So that God hugs us, so to speak, in uh, in the, the language of this. Okay? The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Alright, and it goes on. I'm going to... Yeah, we can let that go for this morning. But, but just picking up here on the sixth verse, and we realize how key this is. Hosea 6.6. 6. Hosea 6.6. 6. And honestly, how often do we pay attention to Hosea 6.6? 6? Jesus did. Jesus cited it repeatedly. It was a big deal in His mind as he was dealing with Pharisees, as he was dealing with religious people that uh, felt that external ritual was, was good enough and uh, external observance made them better than others. And so when you look at Hosea 6.6 6, and then you turn to Matthew chapter 9, what do we see here? Matthew chapter 9. All right, getting into the boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. This would be Capernaum. He'd been on the eastern side, now he's coming back to the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And they brought to him a paralytic laying on a bed and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) Well, that's going to set them off, and sure enough, some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And so Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why are you thinking evil in your heart? And so they, they, they just said it to themselves. They didn't say it out loud. And, and it is blasphemy if anyone other than God attempts to forgive sins. God forgives sins. This is a clear declaration. He is God. He is the God-man. He is, is the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? He said, I said the one to demonstrate now so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he says to the paralytic, 
go, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And so he did. Got up and went home. (laughs) And when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to man. And it's a marvelous miracle, it's a principle, and, and he deliberately made the forgiveness of sin statement first so that he could instruct these legalists on something they had to have uh, an adjustment made with. Now, it's curious to me, when we get a little bit further down in this same chapter, all right, this is what he calls Matthew, follow me, and starts dining with the tax collectors and the sinners. When Jesus heard this, he said, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. They had a problem with who he was associating with. Jesus had a problem with who they were not associating with. Their, uh, their, their separatist, separatist legalism attitude was, was horrible. But go and learn what this means. So he gives them homework. <laughs> Isn't this great? So they, they condemn him. They're critical of the fact that he didn't go to their schools, that he was an illiterate, uneducated man, and they're the PhDs of their generation, and uh, you know, not just PhDs, but Ivy League PhDs. I mean, they're the cream of the crop. They are, I mean, ultimately they are what we would call, you know, establishment, deep state. They are, I mean, the cream of the crop. And he says, go back to school. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea 6.6. 6. And when he sends them back to school, the remedial homework he's given them, you know, and, and they knew the law, they knew the, the Torah, they knew the, the um, in fact there were legends about some of the, 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 the greatest of them had memorized the whole thing. If you can imagine such a thing. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners you're giving the gospel, who are you giving the gospel to? You know, unbelievers. How about that? And do you expect, uh, do you expect that they're doing righteousness and justice? Do you expect that they're godly? Do you expect that they're no, they're sinners. What do you expect? Like, you know, dogs are going to quit barking or cats are going to quit scratching up the curtains or what? Yeah, I mean, just they do what they do. It's in their nature. It's in their nature. And fallen uh, Adamic humanity is sinful. So he says, go and learn what this means. Three chapters later, he has to repeat the lesson in uh, Matthew 12 and verse 7. Going through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. And the Pharisees saw this. They said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. We're so bent out of shape. And they had, they had magnified Sabbath uh, uh, circumstances to such a degree and they controlled it and uh, they could use it to run people's lives. It was a horrible thing. But Jesus said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry? He and his companions, oh, they did a lot worse than just picking grain in a field while you were walking past. He went into the temple and ate the food that was only for the priests. He entered the house of God. They ate the consecrated bread. It was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Yikes. Under Mosaic law, they should have all been stoned right then and there. Or have you not read in the law? <laughs> More insults. I mean, when Jesus says, have you not read, you understand 
You know, it's kind of like, I mean, how insulting is it? Trying to tell, um, honestly, I thought, did you watch the, the confirmation hearings with, with ACB? And, they, and some of the questions were so insulting as if she was ignorant of certain things and she knew more than all of them put together. I'm convinced she just knew what she was talking about in all these things. And, uh, but to use a phrase like, have you not read, you know, be like asking a Supreme Court justice if he ever heard of, uh, you know, uh, a justice of the peace court or something that is so minor, so uh, like, you ever heard of a misdemeanor? Do you know what a misdemeanor is? You know, and expecting that a Supreme Court justice never heard the word misdemeanor before. Like, no, what's that? You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's insulting. So have you not read about King David? Have you not read in the law that the Sabbath, uh, on the Sabbath, priests of the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? In fact, the law commands them to. And I think this is just genius on Jesus' part. Do you, do you break the Sabbath when you are serving God? No. You don't break the Sabbath when you're doing what God told you to do. And so, um, you know, you, you're left with a conundrum. You're left with, a, with an obedience issue. And, and this, I think this relates specifically to circumcising baby boys on the, on the eighth day of their birth. So that means that every baby boy that's born on a Friday, guess what? The eighth day for that baby boy is going to fall on a Sabbath. It's going to fall on Saturday the following week. And so now the, the priests have to figure out, hmm, what, are, we, are we breaking the Sabbath? And they'd say, no, we're not breaking the Sabbath. We're obeying God. We're doing what God has for us to do. And so they were fine circumcising baby boys, the, 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 the Friday's child that was born, on, and that was not breaking the Sabbath. And, and, and so as soon as he proves this, Jesus has got him. Because obeying God is not Sabbath breaking. The same God who is commanding you is the same God that gave the Sabbath. And, uh, and these issues, I think they're pretty clear. All right. But I say to you something greater than the, than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, <laughs> you don't know what this means. I told you three chapters ago to go learn it, and you didn't, right? If you had known what this means, this is called a second-class condition, it's counterfactual, it's not true, but if it would have been true, if you had known what this means, I desire compassion, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. They made a misapplication, they condemned the innocent, and it's based upon their ignorance. The fact that they did not have the, I think it's epinosis, Nope, Gnosko. If he had not known what this means, you would not have condemned the innocent. He quotes the very same Hosea 6 6. And so we have it in these back to back, uh, not back to back, but from Matthew chapter 9 to Matthew chapter 12. All right. So, since the one desire is greater than the other desire, it's like a trump suit in, in bridge, or you're playing cards and you get a trump suit. This outweighs that. Since this outweighs that, you can't do extra amounts of that to overcome the fact that you're horrible in this realm. Religious observance cannot make up for deficiencies in one's personal walk. Religious observance cannot make up for deficiencies in one's personal walk. Just getting extra religious can't bribe God. You can't, you can't buy your way out of, out of things. Okay. 
And here we'll look at these last scriptures and then uh, cut you loose for the day. Move this up here. You can see our verse list. I was asked one time, in fact I was still working for the Sheriff's Department and uh, working nights in the jail, working days in the church. And uh, uh, I had a co-worker who wanted to know about brownie points in the Bible. And he wanted to know if, does the Bible authorize brownie points? Like, can I make up for some things? Uh, you know, and, and he did have a Catholic background, and, and I guess there's some of that's built in if you think you can do penance and you think you can kind of... And what he wanted to do is maybe do some penance ahead of time. And I'm like... What are you trying? What are you, are you planning some sin down the road? What are you doing? You know. Anyway, I tried to convince him. No, there's no brownie points in the Bible, and and these are kind of the verses that that came to my mind back in, on that occasion. All right, you can't just get religious and make up for carnality. Proverbs fifteen eight. Remember this? It's been a while since we were back in chapter fifteen. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. Why, why do the wicked insist on bringing sacrifices? Why do the wicked, if, if, if they are wicked, why do they bother with religion? Well, because they think it helps. They think it's, it can cover. They think it can make up for something. And, and some of the, the most religious people ever meet in the world are thoroughly wicked. Don't confuse an external religion, religious practice with a personal righteousness or a faith or a walk with Jesus Christ. But all that sacrifice is an abomination to the Lord. In uh, this chapter, Proverbs 21, when we get down to verse 27, you're going to see this principle restated. The, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with evil intent? (laughs) He's just magnifying it. He's not uh, even bringing it for... for, um, any of the, the, the phony motivations, he's actually trying to cause somebody else harm in, uh, in his sacrifice. Isaiah 1, all the name calling that happens in Isaiah 1, verses 10 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Okay? Now he's not talking to the literal Sodom and Gomorrah there. They were destroyed centuries before. Okay? I, you know, when Isaiah is ministering, it's about 700 B.C. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed in about 1800 B.C. or earlier. And so um, I've got to rework some of my Old Testament chronologies there. But anyway, it's, they, they, Sodom and Gomorrah has been gone for at least a thousand years by the time that Isaiah is writing. He's talking to Jerusalem and he's calling Jerusalem Sodom and Gomorrah. So that, that's, that's an attention getter. When the name calling gets your attention. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of ram and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. He says, I'm sick of it. I've had it up to here. When you come, and, and they're very religious. They're doing all the sacrifices. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? It's like mom, when mom says, why are you dragging mud through my kitchen? Hey, do I tell that story too many times? <laughs> it just scarred me. I've, I've been impacted by that for years now. 
Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon, Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. This is something that God cannot do. He's sick of it. It stinks. These, they're supposed to be sweet-smelling savors, and instead it just stinks. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Notice he doesn't say I cannot listen. He says, I will not listen. This is what happens when we're out of fellowship, when we're carnal. Our sins have created a barrier between us and God, and we think that He's going to listen to our prayers. Forget it. You're out of fellowship. Confess your sins. The only thing He's listening for is your confession. Your hands are covered with blood. So wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. See, we're back to that desire of mercy and not sacrifice. It's the righteousness and justice that we started with in Proverbs 21. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. There's so much here in Isaiah 1. I, I enjoy this. I turn to this for different things. There's also Psalm 50, but I'm running out of time. I think the, um, the principle is there. And I think it's the, um, we have to have the, the right motivation for the right application. We can't confuse them. And this is where sometimes I think this is where social justice goes wrong because they put the externals up front and they don't have the true spiritual basis for why we want to have righteousness and justice. They also call good evil and evil good and they flip things upside down, which God's not going to be pleased with. Anyway, stay tuned. We'll have more to say on that. Uh, Psalm 50, I'll just assign this as homework and we'll see if I'm any more successful than Jesus was when, <laughs> when Jesus said go and learn what this means and then finds out three chapters later. You never read that, did you? But Psalm 50, when you read through Psalm 50 you're going to find these same principles uh, that we were just reading, just looking at in, uh, in Isaiah chapter 1. So enjoy, you'll have some fun with that one. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness, I thank you for your truth. And uh, we ask that you would open our eyes, humble us to take your truth and to submit to your will in all things. Father, we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.